0: Hi, everybody. I'm Jeannie Faulkner, and this is Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and the Power to Change the World, CSP3. Mm -hmm. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy and Fit Pregnancies, Ask the Labor Nurse, and I also write, teach, and mingle with a few top-notch humanitarian organizations. Through all this, I get to talk to some of the most amazing people who are working in maternal health to make pregnancy and parenting better all over the world. This podcast is my way of sharing those conversations with you. So today, we're going to talk about fitness, media, history, and how the birth industry has changed in the last quarter century. I'll be talking with Peg Moline, who was editor-in-chief of Fit Pregnancy magazine when I started writing Ask the Labor Nurse. Peg's helped form How the Media Presents Pregnancy and Pregnant Women and has been a huge proponent of fitness during pregnancy. She went on to become editor-in-chief for Natural Health magazine, too, and has recently written and co-written two books that we'll learn more about later. Let's start with history. I started out in women's health a million years ago and worked for several years as a sex-ed teacher at the LA Free Clinic and as a medical assistant for a group of OBGYNs. Natural childbirth was a huge trend and epidurals were common, but not as common as they are today. Women were pretty healthy, too. There wasn't as much obesity, but there also wasn't as much autonomy. Women pretty much did as they were told to when it came to prenatal care. Eventually, I became a registered nurse and worked in labor and delivery for the next 20 years. I saw trends come and go, specifically regarding C-sections and induction. There was a good stretch of time in the late 80s and early 90s when hospitals were practically competing with each other over who could have the lowest C-section rates. I was on a task force at one hospital that kept tallies on C-sections and we prided ourselves on reaching a 14% rate. For comparison's sake, our current C-section rate here in the United States is about 33%, and it doesn't appear to be going much lower anytime soon. The World Health Organization says that a safe range for C-section rates is between 5 and 15% of all deliveries. If a country or an area is capable of doing fewer than 5% of their deliveries by C-section, then that means that women who need C-sections aren't getting them. If they're doing more than 15%, then that means that they're probably doing them unnecessarily um, and too often. So during the next dozen years, women started putting on more weight during their pregnancies, and we started seeing, you know, not 25 to 35 pounds, but we started seeing women gaining 40, 60, 80 pounds. We also started seeing more women over age 35 and 40 having babies with the help of infertility treatments. There were more twins and triplets, and more complicated pregnancies. And all of these issues kind of coalesced in helping to increase the c-section rate a little bit. Inductions grew a lot more popular during this time, along with all the extra interventions they require, as women and doctors liked the convenience of scheduling birth like you'd schedule your dental cleaning. Over time though, We started to notice the direct connection between non-medically necessary inductions and increased C-sections. Gradually, we were watching the C-section rate climb. Then in the early 2000s, VBACs, which is vaginal birth after cesarean, suddenly became taboo. There was a study that made VBACs out to be way more dangerous than they actually are, and overnight, hospitals quit doing them. It turned out, we found out in later years, that the study was inaccurate, but still, most hospitals still outright refused to do VBACs. And as more and more women had C-sections, either because they were induced and the induction didn't go well, um, or because they'd already had one C-section, and their hospital had a no VBAC policy, therefore all her births would be by C-section, the C-section rate climbed higher and higher. At the same time, so did maternal dissatisfaction, maternal death rates, NICU admissions, and maternal injuries. Women became pissed off that they had no choice but to submit to surgeries that they didn't want or need. Hospitals dug their feet in, in some really weird cases, not only continued refusing to do VBACs, but they even threatened some women with legal action and child custody proceedings if they didn't submit. Some women were so outraged, they took their births home, and we actually saw a slight increase in the number of home births that were being attended. Other women didn't even know they had choices, and they had two, three, or more C-sections, most of which they probably did not need. But as bad outcomes continued to climb, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists realized they had to make some changes. New studies determined that V-backs weren't so bad after all, and that hospitals and doctors should make them available. In fact, they estimated that about 85% of the time, a VBAC should be successful. And it's certainly not like C-sections are 100% safe. They're major abdominal surgery and women are getting infections, hemorrhaging, and developing placental problems in subsequent pregnancies. Slowly, we're starting to see things change. But part of the fallout of all these interventions and complications is that women started believing they were fragile that pregnancy was inherently dangerous, and that prenatal care was all about rooting out complications and disease. Women got scared, and fear is a very effective way to make women submit to authority, AKA the American birth industry. Throughout all these years, prenatal magazines and other media portrayed pregnancy in some really interesting ways, from girly and delicate to fit and fierce. And that's what I wanna talk to Peg Moline about. Let's get her on the phone. Hi, Peg. Hi, Jeannie. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. good. Good, good. Well, thanks for joining us today. And I want to start by telling our listeners about the work you've done throughout your career. This okay. is one heck of a bio. <laughs> Peg Moline has been involved in health and fitness journalism for 30 years and has been giving trusted advice to pregnant women and new mothers for more than 20 as the founding editor-in-chief of Fit Pregnancy Magazine. Holding multiple roles at Weider AMI Publications, Moline served as Editorial Director of Shape and Editor-in-Chief of Fit Pregnancy and Natural Health. Fit Pregnancy, which just celebrated its 20th anniversary in 2013, began as a spin-off of Shape in 93 and has grown to be the most widely respected magazine for new and expectant mothers. Natural Health just marked its 40th year of publication. Prior to joining Weider AMI, Moline was the fitness editor of Self, based in New York. She started her career as an editor at City Sports Magazine based in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Boston. She's author of a book released in April 2014 called The Doctor's Book of Natural Health Remedies, Random House Galvanized Press, and is co-author with Sam Dworkis of Extension, Mm -hmm. the 20-minute-a-day yoga-based program to relax and rejuvenate the average stressed-out over-35 body, Poseidon Press. Whew! Yeah. (laughs) Peg's a competitive sweep rower and outrigger canoe paddler. She practices yoga and loves to camp and hike with her daughters, Maggie and Lily, and she just started taking singing classes. The family lives in Mar Vista, which is a West Side community in Los Angeles. Hi. That's a big life.
1: It is, yeah. I've been around for a while.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I want to do with this podcast is I want to create the connection for younger moms with more experienced parents like ourselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You and I have some kids the same ages, and we're in more or less the same um, you
1: know, generation point,
0: generation and points in our career. Oh, and yeah, yeah. We've, We've both been working in maternal health in one way or another for decades, and we've seen a lot of change. Yeah. Yeah. So did you start writing about pregnancy and parenthood for um, Fit Pregnancy before or after you had your own babies?
1: Um, I had had one, and that's why I was sort of um, elected to help start this other one, because I had a baby who was like four months old. We had just moved from New York. I started at Shape and they uh, were launching Fit Pregnancy Magazine. So I had a little bit of that experience. Then I also had the experience of being the editor and having another baby. And I went, whoa, we really need to talk about this. There are so many things that it sort of revealed to me while I was in the, um, the process of having a baby. Um, and at Shape, we were simply trying to keep readers involved in the Weeder family at that time because pregnant women were writing to us and saying, I'm not reading shape. I'm canceling my subscription because my doctor says I shouldn't exercise. And we said, Oh no, you should exercise. It's the best thing to do. And here's how to do it safely. So that's how we started.
0: So a couple of things you said that, you know, you, it was your second pregnancy mm-hmm. and you were facing a whole lot of things like what?
1: Oh, like what to eat and um, how to, and also how to take care of the baby because we sort of saw our um, our reader as a pregnant woman and also a novice parent. Most of the readers were first timers, mm-hmm. so um, they also needed a little bit about nursing for one thing, big time about nursing and making that decision before the baby even comes, so you're set because afterwards you are just trying to survive pretty much. Um, but also, how to how to get the baby to sleep, you know, what decisions you, ne- you need to make about that, and how to make sure that your relationship stays strong throughout. That's something that I learned, is that that's a very important component that you need to address before the baby comes too.
0: And then at the same time, you were working a big job.
1: Yes, I was working a big job, yes. But I also had help, um, my My husband then um, is is a massage therapist, so he had a much more flexible schedule and didn't go to an office for eight, 10 hours a day. So he helped a lot. I had a babysitter who I used to call my wife because she really, she, I couldn't have done it with her or without my husband too. So I had a lot of help.
0: I had a wife nanny too. I love Sarah. Sarah, if you're listening to this, you know who you are.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank God for women like Sarah
1: and Maricela for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah. So when you first started getting involved with journalism around
1: the birth culture, mm-hmm. what was it like? It was uh at that point, you know, it was um late 80s and I have to say people were really interested in natural birth and nursing and all those sort of natural things that I was into and um, and so it was really comfortable for us to start with that. We were a little bit left of center. I don't know if anyone ever noticed, but we were big proponents of breastfeeding and lots of education surrounding that. and also encouraging people to have, if not a natural drug-free birth, at least a vaginal birth, mm-hmm. and avoid a C-section if, if at all possible, even though I had a C-section with my first baby, and then then I had a V back. but that was a whole, uh, That was very, very different. Now, now, um, we st- we of course, all the way through until um, the magazine moved to New York, and I ended as editor in chief. We we were very, very committed to breastfeeding, but we also knew that it was setting up a lot of stress for women. For um, you know, the nursing Nazis we used to call them. That was like no bottles, no breast pumps, no nothing except holding your baby and nursing your baby, and that is it. Um, that sort of attitude and, you know, that you could never, ever give a bottle of formula ever, Mm -hmm. that sort of, that was setting people up for failure and they were really stressed and scared and worried. And we knew that that wasn't the way to approach it either. So we had to stop our judgment and really encompass, um, a lot of different points of view and, you know, just stick with the evidence. That's what really, that's really what convinces people to do that.
0: So I started my career as a labor and delivery nurse about the same time in mm-hmm. the late 80s
1: mm-hmm. when
0: you were starting you know writing around this and journalism yeah. around this and I think that the climate was so I agree it was so much more liberal then yeah. than it was you know even 10 years later yeah and certainly far more liberal than it was 20 years later and yeah. we saw so many changes over that time for instance you know in the late 80s and early 90s you could have a VBAC, whereas right. you know you get into 2005, 2010, even you know in many many places today. Good luck with that, sister.
1: Yeah, they VBAC. they yeah. don't want, they really don't want to. The, there was a study that came out, as we all know, that showed that there is a chance of uterine rupture um, with a V VBAC, which is vaginal birth after C-section, of course. And I I know that that's the reason, but I'm not sure that. I really, I, I think there are other problems with VBACs as well that I, I won't get into, but people don't have enough information about right. all of it. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, you cannot get a VBAC now with most doctors. They just won't do it.
0: Well, fortunately, they've changed the policy again on that. Right, yeah. right. And it's been shown that that was actually um, a faulty study. Yep. And that, you know, when you think about it from a common sense perspective, Yes, there's a less than 1% chance of a uterine rupture with a VBAC. Right. But if you do 100% of um, women who have had a previous C-section, make them have another C-section, you're putting far more than 1% of women at harm.
1: Exactly right. Yeah, so it's,
0: yeah. it's kind of shaken down into a common sense position now. It's just going to take a while for doctors to get around to practicing that way.
1: And what we really kind of adjusted our... Are- point of view was that try not to have the first c-section in the the first place right not no do not go oh it's just a c-section it's fine no 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 because it does set you up for having to make that decision with the next pregnancy um it's it's a harder thing to recover from it just sets you up badly so if you don't have to please do not do it for convenience sake do not don't do it for appearance sake they're we started to hear about women who were choosing to have a C-section, hmm, maybe three weeks early, so they wouldn't gain as much weight, right? Or, or wouldn't, or wouldn't be so get big, stretch marks at the end. Wouldn't get those last stretch marks, yeah. So no, 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 no. Do not have. If you can avoid a C-section with the first pregnancy, by all means, avoid it.
0: Yeah. So the magazine is called Fit Pregnancy. Yeah. And clearly, you know, a fitness perspective was a big magnet for you there. But it, there were other focal points, and you've been talking about that a little bit in terms mm-hmm. of covering pregnancy and childbirth.
1: Mm-hmm. We, when we first started, we were the only pregnancy magazine, and uh, we didn't reala- really realize it, but we came from shape, so we thought, okay, we got to cover exercise, prenatal exercise and food and sort of the mood things you go through and all of the prenatal stuff. And then we realized that they also needed postnatal stuff, like postpartum depression how to avoid that while you're still pregnant, Mm -hmm. Um, getting your, you know, getting your body back after pregnancy and what's realistic, how you should eat during and after pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And also we got into fashion because there there was, um, there wasn't a whole lot out there. And we started, you know, we we showed, like, I remember the first issue, we showed very few maternity pieces, Mm -hmm. showed somebody in overalls and, you know, a big, a big T-shirt and leggings. We wanted to get past your know, your husband's T-shirt and you know black leggings. We wanted to get past that, but there wasn't a lot out there. Right. I like to think that we um, we inspired a lot of the maternity fashion that happened maybe five years after that. There were actually really cute clothes that you could wear while you're pregnant.
0: Yeah. You know, what's interesting to me is that I think that the evolution of maternity wear. Um, especially what women are seeing in magazines, specifically Fit Pregnancy magazine, Mm -hmm. is a bit of a feminist statement because it took women from a point where they were either wearing men's oversized clothes or they were wearing the fashions that were available at the time that were childish.
1: They were very, very um, diminutive. They 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 had the famous Peter Pan collar and tons of fabric that was designed to hide your pregnancy, right. to hide your belly. And what we did was say, you know, enough of that. Let's see this belly, it's big, it's tight, it's beautiful, let's see it. And, yeah. you know, we even went even further where with, we showed um, pregnant women in bikinis and it was, a little, it was a little outrageous, which was a lot of fun.
0: I loved that because it yeah. really showed that pregnant women are grown ass women. They're not children, they're not men, you know, dress like you are. I love yep. that.
1: Yeah. yeah, And get used to it.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So you and I met at through fit pregnancy about nine years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, at that point I was still working as a labor nurse and I'd done a few articles for, uh, the magazine. Right. And then I pitched a blog idea to you and you took yeah. it. Yeah. And blogging wasn't, um, you know, the thing yet, it was just no. getting hot and I'm totally glad you decided to sign me up, but What was it you wanted to communicate to readers through the blog?
1: Well, first of all, you're right. We were one of the first, um, actually, one of the first magazines that had a a really decent website. So we were happy about that. And you were writing these great articles about the labor, the birth and labor experience from an insiders, from the trenches. And plus, we loved your point of view. You're just so practical and kind. so that's what I was looking for, was for women to actually get the information about what it was really like with someone who didn't have an agenda of pushing whatever they wanted to push, you know, the epidural or the C-section or whatever, you know, I want to make my golf tea time thing, uh, what really happens and how to navigate that. And, you know, we came out, out every other month and that was just not enough <laughs> to, uh, to really uh, give women the, the, the information they needed immediately. And there was the advantage, of course, of the archive. So you could read your current blog, but you could go back and read about all the things that you covered, and, um, including how to make friends with your labor nurse, which is great information. Yeah.
0: yeah. You know, I, get, I still get emails all the time from people that are reading something that I wrote for, yeah. you know, for the blog like five yeah. years ago. Yeah. And it's just, it's still there. People are still getting the information.
1: Yeah, which yeah. is really great.
0: Yeah, it is. For me, it was a great experience because I think that we were really seeing a huge shift in the birth industry. Mm-hmm. It was getting really, really um, over intervention based. Mm -hmm. And I was worried about it. And I was really worried about women coming into labor and delivery or, you know, into their obstetrician or midwife's office and just being followers. Right. Whatever you say, doctor, whatever you want to do, and simply not realizing that the doctor has an agenda here too. And I'm not going to fault the doctor for their agenda, but part of their agenda is that they have to make sure that they practice legally defensible medicine right and you know so many women just didn't realize that they actually had an important authoritative role in that relationship mm-hmm. and so you know I, I always wanted to give here's what you need to know here is the other side of the story try not to worry so much and try not right. to make fear-based decisions
1: right and also I think that to you I like being a good patient yes. and a good patient knows the options and can make an informed decision and help help the doctor or the midwife whoever is delivering that baby um, I, I think we have um, we really have a privilege to do that and we have a responsibility to do that and one of the things I know that that I'm I think you probably wrote about this was that women are choosing couples are choosing not to take childbirth education classes anymore because they think oh I can just get this all on the internet I can read but um, what I loved about and still love about the child education classes that I still go and take them with every once in a while just to see what's new mm-hmm. is that you get the entire perspective. You might have a c-section. You might have to decide whether you wanted to see a C-section while while you're there, while everything's happening. So it's really good to know your options, know all the possibilities, the scary stuff, the fun stuff. It's, I think it's our responsibility to, to be an informed patient.
0: I do, too. But I kind of see that many hospital-based, I mean, so many people are now getting their prenatal education through their insurance, which right. essentially means they're getting it at their hospital. That's and true. that can be great because mm-hmm. they're going to get an affordable prenatal education plan. Right. Um, they're going to get something that is going to be familiarize them with the experience they're going to have. And they're also going to meet people in their own community who are having babies at the same time.
1: Right. But it's very important.
0: Yeah, incredibly important. But I also see that hospitals tend to spend more time on how to be a good patient and the interventions that you should expect and Mm -hmm. the pain management options that are available at the hospital and less about normal labor process and normal physiologic birth. Right. So it, I I feel like rather than it being the prenatal education class that we saw in the, you know, 70s, 80s and even early 90s, now mm-hmm. what we're seeing is a hospital education class.
1: It, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Now they won't even talk about home birth. They will not even talk about it and, I know. and- there are so many, but you know, I think there also is. There are plenty of people who are choosing that. You know, there are always rebels, mm-hmm. and I, I applaud that undercurrent, and I love it when it surfaces. Um, you know, Ricky Lake got, got a, a lot of attention for even just suggesting that that that's something you can do, that you can have an unmedicated birth attended by a Wife, maybe in your home or your hot tub or yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of those wonderful things. And, um, that's, yeah, that, that sort of exposure is going away. That's what I really loved about fit pregnancy too, is that we were able to cover that stuff. Right. Yeah. So
0: since then, I mean, the, the, the writing climate of, for, about pregnancy and parenthood has completely changed because it's now all over the web. Now there's, yeah. You know, uh, there's hundreds of pregnancy uh-huh. and baby-centric
1: yeah. websites. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think that, while I still think that there's a huge advantage for people to show up in person, in a room with a prenatal educator, Yeah, I also see that internet-based prenatal education is really valuable right now, too, because yeah. there are a lot of women who simply cannot get there. Right. They don't have a car, so, or right. they can't afford the time off or they don't, you know, I mean, there's just so many reasons why they can't show up in the church basement or the hospital room and get the education. And so at least they can get it online.
1: Yeah. And I, I love that. And I think there are more and more options. So, um, the thing that I would encourage is for, is to be open and Mm -hmm. really look at a lot of different ways that there are a million different ways to deliver that baby, not a million, but, um, really And know that that it's really in your best interest if you avoid that induction or that C-section. It, yeah. it doesn't do you any good. And it doesn't really do the baby any good.
0: Right. So you and I have both seen media portrayal, you know, mm-hmm. all kinds of media mm-hmm. um, of pregnancy change a lot over the years. And we're seeing yeah. a lot of we're seeing a lot of conversation. And really interesting portrayal around women's health right now. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: So, what part do you think that you, as the editor in chief of you know some big magazines and Fit Pregnancy specifically, what do you think that they played? How do you think they played in that evolution?
1: Well, first of all, I think that uh, it was a great thing to see people pregnant to see. You know, celebrities, for instance, out on the street showing off their pregnancy, wearing those tight clothes that we were all wearing and and just embracing and really uh, showing off their bellies Mm -hmm. and and embracing their pregnancy. So so that was that was good. I think it's interesting to see how now, um, you know, it's okay to have a baby if you're single. It's okay to have a blended family. It's okay to have a same sex couple adopt or have a baby somehow there's a lot of different options but also there are a lot of strange expectations like that we're supposed to just bounce back and be fine without Mm -hmm. any help that you know you never see anybody I mean fortunately some very high profile people like Brooke Shields have written stories about books about postpartum depression and what happens if you don't have any support um so I think it can be good. It can be bad. The one very strange thing that I really haven't seen addressed too much in the media lately is that when you're on—and you'll you'll um, appreciate this too—when you're on a labor and delivery ward now, you don't hear any screaming. No, everybody's having epidurals, and they're just going, "Oh, look, there's another contraction. Isn't right. that interesting? It's so." odd and they're doing that or they're having their c-section and and there's no sound from that either it's very interesting
0: right how about you what do you
1: see
0: uh you know i i see i i think that that the pendulum is kind of swinging back and forth and at this moment we're kind of at an extreme where there is so much conversation right now about women's health that an awful lot of conversation is around controlling women's bodies. And I think that we are still sort of at the far end of controlling women's bodies during pregnancy, prenatal Mm -hmm. care, labor, and birth. And I think that the pendulum is starting to swing back to something that is more practical. Mm -hmm. I think that the studies are coming in that these high intervention delivery practices and standards of care, actually did more harm than good. So let's start looking at what is normal. Let's start, you know, quit looking for complications and start looking at what is normal. Hmm. And I find that pretty encouraging. Yeah, I'm actually optimistic. I don't think that we're, we have not made the sweep yet, but it's happening. It's starting.
1: I agree. Yeah. And there's there's one thing about a vaginal birth that I did some research on this year that um, you wouldn't think that it has anything to do, to do with it, but I did a lot of research on the microbiome. And um, oh yeah. And they're finding. I talked to a, a you know a, a micro a scientist, a biologist, who said one of the things that is making people allergic and sick and have a lot of just all these autoimmune things is that. If you're not born via vaginal birth, you don't get the same bacteria going through the birth canal and you're born with other bacteria that comes from, you know, the doctors and the nurses in the room that you're in. And that can have a profound effect on your health for the rest of your life. Sure. So So now
0: they're talking about if you have to have a C-section, that they will take a swab of Uh, the vaginal rectal area and they'll introduce it to the baby you know,
1: That's as, brilliant. That's great.
0: It yeah. is brilliant. But it's also just
1: Right. One another step way removed. to get around
0: it. Yeah. Another way yeah. to get around it. It's one step removed from what was intended.
1: The normal stuff. Yeah. yeah.
0: That said, I don't want to have readers thinking that you know, all C-sections are bad. I have been in so many operating rooms with so yeah. many women who are having C-sections that are saving lives. Yeah. Theirs That's are true. their babies. But totally. then I've also been there a lot, a lot, a lot of times when we didn't need to be doing that C-section. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, but I am I am optimistic.
1: Yeah, me too. And I think that we're, you know, I, I'm always the rebel. And I always encourage people to question authority. So if you feel that something isn't right or you sort of want to know how to do it differently, you should always follow that instinct. Right. Always. Right. Um, because you're smart. You know. And you can you you, know, you may not uh, oppose what your doctor said but you can question it you always can
0: i think that that's the most important thing that i want you know my listeners and people that you know read my book to know is that get some background information and then ask the questions right so many patients would say well i didn't want to ask i didn't want yeah. him to think i didn't trust him i didn't want right. her to think that i was nosy And I just want to say, honey, whose body is this? Whose baby is this? It's yours. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: I want to have another baby. (laughs) (laughs) Do you really? No, I'll wait for grandchildren. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Peg, this was fun talking to you again. You too. Yeah, let's talk soon. Okay. Okay,
1: bye. Thanks, Jeannie.
0: My guest today was Peg Moline, author, writer, and editor extraordinaire. You can see more of Peg's work at pegmoline.com. Thanks for joining me on Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting. Please subscribe to my podcast on iTunes and leave a rating, too. You can find my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, on Amazon.com, at Barnes & Noble, Target.com, and anywhere books are sold. You can see more of my work at genefaulkner.com. Follow me on Twitter at Jean Faulkner and email your questions to gene at genefaulkner.com. Listen in every Saturday for new episodes and thanks for chatting with me.